I was still in this kind of place of feeling like I was mom with a capital M and I could fix anything. Because when we drove to the hospital, we dropped Molly off at a friend's and we drove to the hospital and I can see myself sitting in the back seat with Jimmy curled up under my arm next to me. And I kept saying to him, you are going to be just fine. We are going to get this tumor out of you and you are going to be just fine. And I absolutely believed it. I thought we were just going to go in and they were going to take it out. And then he was going to go on with his life, almost as if it had never happened. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Margot Folks. After the death of her son, Jimmy, in 2014, Margot created Saltwater, an online community that provides a safe harbor for those who are grieving the death of someone dear to them. Inspired by Jimmy's determination to live a rich, full life despite his circumstances, Saltwater's articles and other resources focus on healing and building a new life in the aftermath of a devastating loss. Welcome, Margot. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I can't tell you how thrilled and excited I am to be here. Oh, I'm so happy you're here. And we've been talking on and off for a little while. And it's just a pleasure to finally have this time to hear your story and, and how you've been with this concentrated interview, this conversation that we can have. So, you know, can you take me back to your family before 2014, how many kids you had and what your experience was with loss or even cancer? Sure, absolutely. So I would say that I was one of those people that didn't have a lot of experience with devastating loss or trauma. My parents were both much older. My, my mom was in her late 30s and my father was 60 when I was born. And my dad lived to be 102 and a half. And when he died, you know, he died at home after going into a coma for four or five days. And I had this idea like that's how it worked, right? You Maybe not everybody lived to be 102, but that you lived into this ripe old age and then you passed away. And it was sad and I certainly missed him, but I was firmly in that place of, of you know, he had a good life and a rich life. And how could I expect to have more time with him than that? I was grateful to have so many years with him as I did. And so we were, you know, we were sort of the, like the perfect little nuclear family. And we had a son named Jimmy and a daughter named Molly. So we had a boy and a girl and my husband worked and I had a consulting practice and we were just busy and you know, engaged in the kinds of activities you are that kids are at that age. So the turning point for us was 2006 and Jimmy was 13 and Molly was nine. Mm -hmm. And so uh, prior to that, things seemed pretty straightforward. You, you had like pretty average academic lives for them. They were pretty cookie cutter in terms of their emotional well-being and all that, right? Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the normal ups and downs. Sure. We moved to Portland when Jimmy was in fourth grade from Sacramento. And so there was, you know, a little upset and consternation around the move, particularly for him, because he had to switch schools mid-year. 
But I mean, those were the kinds of things that we were dealing with and, and not to minimize them, but I didn't know what I didn't know. I I thought those were the big things that you had to stress about and contend with as parents. I I didn't know there was this whole other set of challenges and pain that was Mm. possible. I think that's an important kind of um, perspective to share because I I understand when you haven't walked in the shoes of somebody else and you just don't understand what they've gone through. And then if it touches you, you realize there's a whole side that you didn't realize other people were grappling with. And, and I've experienced that in other ways in my life as a mom. And so I can imagine the contrast between before 2006 and after was pretty big. Yes. It was huge. It was huge. It was like there was this whole other parallel universe that opened up that I really didn't know was there. It wasn't that I was ignoring it or unsympathetic. I just, I didn't know it existed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I bet it probably felt like, you know, if you don't know about the numbers, I mean, I wonder if it even felt like it would be a minority of people who go through this and it's, it's really, really rare. Well, certainly our son's kind of cancer is. I mean, he, there are only about 350 children a year that are diagnosed in the entire United States with his kind of cancer. And I remember Molly saying once pretty early on to us, you know, Jimmy had a better chance of winning the lottery than he did getting this cancer. And I thought, yeah, actually, you're right. That's Mm -hmm. true. So do you want to talk a little bit about the diagnosis and and when things started to transform into this next phase of your life and what kind of cancer it was. Absolutely. So it really started on Christmas Eve in 2005. Jimmy suddenly stood up from the couch as we were watching a Christmas movie and said, I don't feel well and raced to the downstairs bathroom and threw up. And my immediate thought was, he's got food poisoning, he ate too much, he's got a touch of the flu, that kind of thing. And he felt fine afterwards. And so I I sort of put it out of my my mind, basically. And we left a couple days later to go to Maui for the week to celebrate the new year. And while we were there, he kept getting headaches more and more frequently. And most of the time, it would lead to a point where he would again get sick and then feel fine. So I called the pediatrician's office and they went through all the usual suspects like, is he overly tired? Is he dehydrated? Mm -hmm. Has he eaten something? You know, that kind of thing. Um, But they said, bring him in when you get back. And so we did. And Marco, did you have any, did you have any feeling or apprehension at this point? None. Mm -hmm. None. I, I was convinced that this was just something that had a pretty straightforward explanation to it and that we could fix it. So when we returned um, to Portland, we took him, my husband and I took him into the pediatrician. And the pediatrician also was thinking that this had a pretty straightforward explanation. So he walked Jimmy through a couple of tests, he asked him some questions, and then he sort of pronounced that it must be teenage onset migraines. And I went home that day and I looked it up on the internet, as we all do these days as parents, and I thought, this doesn't make sense. This this doesn't fit where he says the pain is. 
And so he had told us that if they continued to bring Jimmy back in a couple of days. And so we did. And when I was in the office, I said to him, this doesn't feel like the explanation that fits. And he looked at me and he said, this is why we shouldn't let you mothers on the internet. And I thought, okay, well, he's the doctor. He must know, but this doesn't make sense to me. And so at that visit, he said that he wanted to run an MRI on Jimmy. And he said, just to rule out anything scary. So my husband and I took him to the MRI and we couldn't get it done that day because the MRI machine went down. So Dan took him back, I think it was the next day or later that afternoon, I don't remember which, by himself. Because again, we were in this place of it's not going to find anything. And so they did the MRI and the technician came out to get Dan and said, the pediatrician's on the phone. So Dan gets the phone and this man says, I am so sorry about your son's brain tumor. And this is how Dan found out that Jimmy's brain tumor had showed up on the scan. And then he realized really quickly that Dan didn't know and that he, that was how he had told him. So Dan understand how he would have thought that like, if you're getting an MRI, then it seems to me that you would be, uh, you wouldn't know what was going on and you were trying to figure it out. So I don't understand how that, you know, why that pediatrician did that. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Was it your, the same pediatrician? No, it was actually a pediatrician on call or, or covering for our pediatrician who was on vacation. And I guess he assumed that the radiologist had talked to Dan. But his instruction was, he said, go home, get your wife, take your son to the emergency room, and they'll check him in and the, and the pediatric neurosurgeon will meet you there. So Dan had to put Jimmy in the car and drive home and kind of park him on the couch with a movie and his sister, and then come in our home office and tell me that, that Jimmy had a brain tumor. And the brain tumor we later learned was something called medulloblastoma, which as I mentioned earlier, is something that only 350 kids get in the, or are diagnosed with in the US. And they're not genetic, there's, they're just one of those fluke happenstances where something goes wrong in utero and the, the tumor forms. Oh, it's that early that it, it's just been sitting there waiting and growing? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And most kids are diagnosed between three and eight. That's the most common age. So Jimmy was a little older than most kids. Mm-hmm. So did he know what you knew while he was waiting with his sister on the couch? No. He didn't because then Dan and I told him together. We told both of them. And Molly, of course, at at nine, didn't have an understanding of what that meant. And, And I was still in this kind of place of feeling like I was mom with a capital M and I could fix anything. Because when we drove to the hospital, we dropped Molly off at a friend's and we drove to the hospital and I can see myself sitting in the back seat with Jimmy curled up under my arm next to me. And I kept saying to him, you are going to be just fine. We are going to get this tumor out of you and you are going to be just fine. And I absolutely believed it. I thought we were just going to go in and they were going to take it out 
And then he was going to go on with his life, almost as if it had never happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's a that's a really good attitude, I feel like, to have when you have a kid who could be really afraid. I mean, you know, it's interesting that you already note that you were still in this phase of feeling like you were a mom with a capital M. And I feel that's really relatable. I feel like so many of us do that. And I, I would imagine that I mean, you didn't have a lot of information at your hands and, you know, that was probably the smartest thing to do for him. Do you regret that you've, you felt that way, that you behaved that way? No, I don't. It's, it's more that I look back on it now, knowing what I know about how it developed and even just knowing more about cancer in general. I, I look back and I think about that that young mom and think, wow, you know, you were so naive. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and it, and like you said, Ronit, it was a good thing because if I had known any even a fraction of what I know now, I would have been just so terrified that I'm not. I would have probably scared him, and mm-hmm. that wouldn't have been a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally think so. Sometimes not knowing what we don't know is a blessing, right? Exactly. <sighs> So, so then did things, when, once you got to the hospital and once he got checked in, did things proceed pretty quickly? Yes, very quickly. They, they immediately gave him uh, a steroid to reduce the swelling. And he, within half an hour, said, wow, I feel better than I have in weeks. Can I have a pizza? <laughs> and so he, you know, by that point, the neurosurgeon came in to see us and she showed us the scan. And, you know, I can see myself looking at that image of this, the, you know, my son's brain. And then inside is this golf ball sized tumor that's just bright white on the scan. And she said, I'm going to go in. There's no sign of metastases. And she said, I'm going to take, you know, all the tumor. And if I can get any margin, I'll get, I'll take some margin. It's hard, obviously, in the brain but I'll get whatever I can, I can see and take safely. And that's exactly what she did. It was a completely successful surgery and he had no sign of any metastases. So at the time he was classified as what's called a standard risk kid. And the protocol was pretty straightforward. Um, and I don't know now if it's changed, but at the time it was six weeks of, of craniospinal radiation and nine rounds of chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. After the removal? Mm-hmm. After the removal. Mm-hmm. And so was that time challenging for your family? It was and it wasn't. I mean, it was certainly, it was certainly a grind. But Jimmy has had the most remarkable immune system. And he just weathered it. So he got tired with the radiation, you know, the way you would expect. But he decided early on that he wanted to be in school and he wanted to be with his friends. So he went to school every day and then he would go get radiation and then he would come home. And, you know, our friends rallied together as as people so often do. And they made meals and, you know, helped out with Molly and, and just, you know, made everything possible, basically. And then with the chemotherapy, he didn't get that sick from it. And in fact, he was never hospitalized for an infection because even though his counts would go down, I remember the the closest he came was the final round when they when his white blood cell count dropped to 500. And anything 
below 500 would have put him in the hospital. And that kid just <laughs> plateaued at 500. It was like, yeah, I'm not going into the hospital. I'll just hang oh. here. So then was the feeling sort of, uh, you know, I'm trying to imagine what it was like because, you know, you get this list of things you have to do. I've seen those, at least those binders that kids going through treatment have about what medicine is due when and what the treatment course is like. And so you had this plan and your kid is responding pretty well. And so is he still 13 at this point or has he gotten, like how much time has passed? So the entire treatment protocol takes a little over a year. So he was diagnosed in January of 2006, and he finished in sometime in March of mm. 2007. Mm-hmm. And was his energy good? Was he starting to feel better? Yes. And, and all of his scans were clean. So we really, and when I say we, not just Dan and me and Jimmy, but also his doctor, we all thought that he was going to be cured. Is that... Is that usually what they do, like when they remove it, this, uh, did you call it a blastoma? A medulloblastoma. Medulloblastoma, Mm -hmm. when you remove them, do they have a pretty good rate of recovery for patients? Yes, they do. So at the time where, again, they didn't have the molecular testing that they do now, but at the time, kids with Jimmy's diagnosis, typically 70 to 80% of them were alive without any sign of recurrence at five years. And most of them went on to not have recurrences, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. So at this point, did the doctor feel optimistic? Did you all feel pretty good? We all did. We all did. And I think, too, with the way that Jimmy sailed through the radiation and the treatment, I took that as a sign from the universe that we were getting the remaining cells and that he was going to be fine. You know, mm-hmm. I, as, as you do, you know, you look for anything, you know, pennies that are face up and <sighs> anything that just suggests that things are going to be okay. And, and Jimmy's doctor also is, is optimistic in an appropriate way, but optimistic. And so we just all felt like he was going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And so did you resume family activities, vacations, gatherings? How many years did you get or how many months did you get of sort of a peace of mind? We got almost exactly one year. His his recurrence showed up on a quarterly scan and he had no symptoms. So we had, we were blindsided. And I had an inkling that something was going on as we were sitting in Dr. Nicholson's room, treatment room, waiting room, not whatever you call it, waiting room, I guess, because he was late to get there. And he just typically didn't run late. And I just had a bad feeling that something was going on. And when he walked in, the look on his face, I just thought something's something's happened. And then he had to tell us that there was something on the scan and he was pretty sure it was, it was the cancer recurring. In the brain? Yes. Like same place? Is that how they work? No, it was actually a different location in the brain. Wow. It's so, it's so interesting to me because I felt like when, I, when you told me that it was, when it happened in utero, that made me, an uneducated person about this, feel like it was a one-time tumor. Like it, it happened right there and then it was gone. So it, it surprises me that because she was able to get it cleanly, that another another developed. 
Right. Exactly. And, and I had that same view of it too, or that, that same perspective. And I remember our, our best friend, Howard, who's like our fifth, who is our fifth family member, um, came from New Zealand to be with us. He came when Jimmy was diagnosed and he came immediately when he recurred. And I remember saying to him just in tears, how can this be happening? And Howard's a, a doctor, he's a plastic surgeon and he treats mel- melanoma. So he, he knows of what he speaks. And he looked at me sadly and he said, you know, Margot, it takes only one cell. Mm. That's chilling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you feel like is important to know about your story from this point on, you know, what happened in your family and for you next, you know, I'll let you sort, I don't, I know that so much must have happened, but what do you feel is like important to share? Do you feel like the day to day or, you know, what happened next for you as a family? To answer that question, I have to go back to when Jimmy was done with treatment, because what I realized in hindsight, when, when the cancer came back was that we had slipped back into that normal, happy, perfect little family, if you will, where we, you know, we were busy, we were preoccupied. We, you know, we probably were doing too much. We were running the kids around a little bit, you know, driven (laughs) by them, but you know how that goes where it's like, they want to do this and they want to do that. And we were busy and, you know, we were taking a vacation here and there, but we were mostly just kind of you know, racing through life, basically. And when Jimmy's cancer came back, we realized the, you know, that sort of cliche of, of how precious life is and how precious our time together is. And it was just a huge wake-up call. And I will say that, that we were so lucky in one respect in that with medulloblastoma, when it comes back, most of these kids only live three to six months. Because when it comes back, it tends to come back like a freight train and it just spreads everywhere. And normally the kids are symptomatic because it's already causing problems by the time they find the recurrence on the scan. But Jimmy's was slow growing for some reason, and we, we'll never know why, but it was. And so what we did is we just leaned in to each other. We, you know, we started taking these amazing vacations Anything he or Molly wanted to do, you know, if we could make it happen, we did it. And so I feel like in some ways those six years are a gift because we never missed an opportunity to go on an adventure or to be together. Did the doctors ever say, we're going to go back in and try to get this? No, I asked that question and Dr. Nicholson said it was clustered together, but there was too much of it and no easy way to go get it. And so the answer was no, that we had to try another series of chemotherapy treatments versus trying to use surgery to Mm -hmm. go get it. Mm -hmm. And so during this time, how was Jimmy feeling? Did he have energy? Was Was he sickened by the treatment? He was with that next series that we did because he had five rounds of pretty intense chemotherapy. And so he was hospitalized after every round. Within a week or two, his, his counts would plummet and he would, he would get some sort of an infection and have to go into the hospital. But, you know, he soldiered on with high school. 
he, you know, he was there unless he was in the hospital, basically. And managed his sophomore year. I'm trying to think of timing now. Yeah, his sophomore year, I remember he he played he played goalie for his high school soccer team just as he had his freshman year. And I can remember one day dropping him off from the hospital where he'd just been released. And I came back to pick him up and he was running a lap around the field and he was dead last and a hundred feet behind the last guy, maybe more. And yet there he was, you know, running out there trying to, to keep up with his team. And that, that was Jimmy. He just, he was determined to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm getting a sense of that. Did he, did he have a good relationship with Molly? Yes. Yeah. They, they were very close despite the age gap. I think she's always been older than her years. And, and they just, they adored each other. Mm-hmm. What's it like for you as a mom to, I don't know, I feel like you had to straddle these worlds of staying in the present and also feeling the future pressing in on you. I, I, one thing that helped was that Dan and I had realized what a, just a deep, solid partnership that we had as a married couple and as parents. So he, he, for example, didn't go back to work that whole first year of Jimmy's treatment. And then he went back after the treatment finished. And then when Jimmy recurred, then, then I stopped working. And so we would sort of go back and forth where both of us would be home. One of us would be home. I did all the the research on clinical trials and treatment options and things like that. And, and Dan took care of things like coaching Molly's softball teams or getting her to and from practice. And because that was another thing that we committed to each other was that we were going to keep Molly's life as whole and, and as much like she wanted it to be as we could through all this. And so she was aware of what was happening, but at the same time, you know, again, we did our best to make sure that there wasn't anything she couldn't do because of, of what was happening with her brother. Yeah. And so as time went on, I mean, it sounds like six years was a pretty lengthy period of time for someone with a recurrence, reoccurrence. Yes, it was. It was. And we had, you know, you, you asked me earlier about, you know, sort of how that went um, with him. Part of it is, you know, he had this really slow growing recurrence. So the treatment the first year for that in 2008 was pretty horrific. But after that, when the cancer came back again the following March and showed up on a scan, we tried a low-dose chemotherapy protocol that really didn't have that much in the way of side effects. And, and then for the, so for the next couple of years, Jimmy was able to finish out high school. He got into college. He went to Stanford. He was able to go for two and a half years before he called one day and said, look, I just don't feel well. And, and some of it's the treatment and some of it's just, you know, being too tired. I just can't do this. I need to come home. And then, and so he came home for the last year of his life. But up until that point, he was living independently and, and at college. Mm-hmm. Like such energy, it sounds like he had. He re- Yeah, he really did. Yeah. It's hard for me, I feel, to ask these questions because, you know, I know 
I know that he's gone. And I, I know that you've talked about this and you think about it a lot. It's part of your work, but do you, is there anything about those last periods of time as a family that you feel like you'd want listeners to know about or to convey about this part of your, your loss with, you know, losing Jimmy? I think the most important lesson that I learned during those, those final months was from Jimmy's nurse practitioner, Shannon, who's also become a very dear, beloved friend. Because she's the one who sat me down after the last really bad scan and said, you have got to tell him that he's dying. Because you have walked this whole path with hope and optimism, and he takes his cue from you. And that's okay. But now... We we don't know the exact timing of this, but we know how this is going to end. And you've got to give him that information because otherwise he, he may not figure it out until it's too late. And then he won't be able to spend these final weeks or months, whatever he has left, the way he wanted to spend them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's compassionate. It sounds very, it's hard. It's hard to do that, but it sounds like that that's a compassionate choice. It was. And it also, it led to two of the most amazing weeks of our lives. Because what Jimmy wanted was he wanted to see the people he loved most. And so for two weeks, sort of staggered apart, we had his high school friends, his best friend from college, our friend Howard from New Zealand, my sister-in-law and her family and my brother-in-law, my mother, all these people that he just, he just adored, who loved him fiercely, come and spend time with him. And it, it, to say that it was an honor just to be part of that is, is almost an understatement. It was the most incredible outpouring of love I have ever, ever seen. Hmm. It sounds like it. It sounds like people really were there and they showed up. And and it's it's interesting, you know, listening to it. It's like, I know I'm just trying to get a sense of how people balance the grief. And I know we're going to get into this soon, but that idea of celebrating a life and enjoying the present moment with someone who's about to pass with the grief that is encroaching. What it, What have you learned about that? Or what did you notice in loved ones or even in Jimmy? I think the key was, was Jimmy's sense of humor because he was always really funny in this sort of (laughs) dry way. And, and he and Molly both are people that will pop out with the funniest things, observations, (laughs) comments, just, and so I think he approached the visits and the time together with a really light touch he was so grateful that people came and he was determined to make the most of it. So he he played video games with his friends and we sat around the kitchen table eating, you know, whatever he felt like he wanted to eat that day and just talking. And it was the the daytime time spent together felt almost normal, if you will. But the one thing that Jimmy added to that on his own was that when he would get in bed at night, he would ask whoever was staying with us to come spend some time with him. And they would sit in the dark together and he would tell that person how much he loved them. 
and what a difference they'd made in his life. And it gave the other, the other person, if they wanted to, a chance to, to say the same to him. I can't wrap my head around him being so young and also so in touch with what he needed and maybe even what they needed. Yeah, it was pretty remarkable. I had somebody ask me if that was something that Dan or I suggested to him and and we didn't, it was all him. Yeah, it just, it gives me shivers, you know, Mm -hmm. to think about that. I guess that, that brings us to losing him. What is it like for you now? So, so many years now, I mean... It's it's not that many years. It's six years, I guess, right? Seven? Seven, seven years. Yeah, it was just yeah. seven years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what's it like for you now? What's it like for Molly? So it, it's easier for me to answer the question for me. And, and I would say that if for anybody who's had a, a devastating loss, I imagine they'll relate to this in that I kind of thought of loss as being linear and grief is linear, that you just sort of grieved. And then maybe it ended at some point. But it was, it, it didn't, it didn't change or evolve somehow is what I thought. And that's not what I found. What I found is that in the early stages, you know, every month, every week, sometimes every day or every hour could be different. And then as time went on, it became more like every year was different. And so A friend of mine whose daughter passed away reminded me recently that I I had told her that the fifth year was was really hard because she was just crossing the fifth year with her daughter. And and I had sort of forgotten that I said that. But but I remember thinking, yeah, that's true, that, you know, some years are harder than others and they're not really necessarily the ones you'd expect. And, and it, and it changes like this year for me with year seven, I thought I was doing reasonably well as we approached the anniversary of Jimmy's death. And then for a week or so afterwards, I felt like I had a grief hangover that I couldn't shake. So it, it definitely changes, but I think the biggest change for me, which was, which was sort of a, it's a blessing and, and unexpected is that I feel Jimmy's presence more now than I did right after he died. And I think some of that is time and and space. And some of it, I think, is because I write and I think about him so much that somehow I'm I'm getting access to memories and time spent together. And they're just they're kind of seeping back in to me. And 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 I'm also at a place now where it's been long enough that I can hold them, you know, too early on. And it was just it would it would have broken me to think about as, him as a little boy and the fact that he wasn't here anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think any parent can relate to that. It's, it's hard to even fathom, you know, it's like, it's so frightening to even think about and it's the worst and it's happened. And, and then you're left with what you do with the rest of your time, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think as anyone would tell you, who's certainly who's lost a child, that the greatest gift you can give a parent who has lost a child is to keep talking about that child, to say that child's name, to ask for stories, to share stories if you have them, but to to leave space for that child to continue to have a presence. Because the worst thing is, which I've, I've been very lucky and I really haven't experienced this a lot, but I hear from 
other grievers that I talk to that this happens more often than not, which is people are afraid to say the name or to ask questions about that child. And then, and then there's just sort of dead space there, which is just devastating for that parent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, especially if you're at a point where you can, for you now, where you can think about these memories and, and hold them and look at them without it breaking you, then for you, it's a gift to talk about him. Exactly. Exactly. And I also, what's interesting to me too, is that I think again, because I do write and think about him, it also gives other people the I don't, incentives, the wrong word, but that's the word that comes to mind, the, the inspiration maybe to do the same. And so like for per- example, permission, permission, or mm-hmm. kind of an invitation. Exactly. And, and what I think of is one of my dearest friends, Shelby, whose son, Willie was Jimmy's best friend. She and I were texting a bit about, about memories and about Jimmy. And I wrote something for Saltwater for my website and she texted me about it. And she said, you know, it, it, it sparked a memory of asking Jimmy what, how he handled a bad scan. And she said, I remember saying to him after he had a scan that was very concerning, you know, wow, that seems like a lot to handle, Jimmy. You know, what do you, what do, you do when you get news like that? And he looked at her so sweetly and he said, I come over to your house and I have a milkshake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to have this person who you care so much about holding on to his memory too, to share that. Oh, yeah. So when did you start Saltwater? When did you decide, hey, I want to do something beyond my family? I got the idea sometime around... 2016, I think. And it, it, I also, I should add that my mother passed away a year after Jimmy did. So I had suffered these two really devastating losses fairly close together. And I was, I was searching online for websites that were comforting and, and groups that were comforting. And I wasn't really finding what I was looking for, for a variety of reasons. And a friend of mine basically said, you need to do this yourself. You need to go create what you can't find. And, mm-hmm. and that was really the impetus to create Saltwater. Mm-hmm. I love the name too. I love the, the you know, it's, it's, so, it's such a good, impactful name. What do you offer on your website? So several things. So the, the website is set up to be supportive for anyone who's grieving almost any kind of loss. And because I also lost my mother, I didn't, I I realized that people don't often have just a single loss, that very often we lose several people in our lives, you know, over the course of them. And so it's for, it's for any kind of loss. There are resource pages for each type. And then there's something like 400 blog posts now, which are also indexed and grouped so that if you're looking for the 20 blog posts that we have, say, on parent loss or pet loss, you can very easily go in and and find just those posts. So there's posts on the physical recovery, physical dealing with grief, which is under sweat, the, the pain of loss under tears. 
and then the the building of a life in the aftermath, which are all under under the sea. And so are you working on any new projects right now? Actually, the, the thing that I'm thinking a lot about these days and, and working on is is grief within my consulting practice. Because oh, when can I you talk about that? When I so when I started Saltwater, I also relaunched my consulting practice. And when I did it, I felt like the two were very separate. So I had this, you know, professional life that I I needed to get back to because I needed the distraction and the engagement and the busyness of that. And then saltwater was where I poured my grief and loss. But what I realized was that there is so much loss in the workplace and so much grief. And and I don't mean just from, from death, which of course certainly affects how people are if they lose someone and then they have to go back to work or if if one of their colleagues dies and people need to process it. But we have so many things that happen to us that are losses that we grieve in the workplace. It can be a job loss. It can be, it can be a boss getting promoted that you really, really loved working for. And now your new boss isn't so great. And you, you miss, you mourn for that, lot, that boss that you had before. So it shows up in a lot of different ways. And I never really used terms like grief and loss in the past when I, when I was working on these kinds of issues. But what I find is that it, it comes up more and more. And so I've gotten a lot more intentional about the, the thinking and writing that I'm doing about ways to deal with grief in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a conversation that, I mean, I know I never learned it growing up. I mean, I never, ever, my my life, I just was not touched by those conversations of grief. It certainly had a loss or two, but it wasn't something we talked about. And I know that it is becoming a little more front and center in our conversations. And so it's, you're part of, I feel like this movement of embracing and thinking about grief and and realizing that it's not something that is necessarily a staged experience like the stages of grief. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and I think, you know, just as we struggle as humans to talk about grief and loss and death with each other just personally, it's so much worse in the workplace because not only are people incredibly uncomfortable bringing it up and acknowledging it, you also have that whole timing factor, right? So even if I'm comfortable saying to you that I'm so sorry that your parent has passed away, I have to be sure that I don't say it right before you go off to an important meeting because Mm -hmm. I don't want to set you off unintentionally, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So there's so many more landmines in the workplace that, that people need help navigating. And so are people, do you find that people, more and more people are reaching out now for that service, for that help? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. progress. That's great. Yeah. I think it's, it is really important. And it was, and it was truly, it was inspired by some of the early people connected to Saltwater who talked about having to go back to work and having no one say anything to them. Mm, right. Right. And that's just, just the kind of denial this just complete deflection. I think it's really it's really important. And I imagine with your experience and the time that you've spent writing and putting out these resources, you are an incredible tool and resource for these other people. Do you, you know, in the time that we have left before we send people to your links, how's how's your husband doing? I think he's doing okay. You know, we 
we have maintained that really strong connection that, that, you know, we had before Jimmy, but it's now it's sort of honed by fire, if you will. And we, we grieve together. You know, we certainly talk freely about Jimmy and I know that, that he misses him to his very core. Mm -hmm. And I know that you can't speak for Molly either. Have you felt that her experience is, is a more challenging one? I think it's challenging in a different way. Because I think when you lose a sibling, there's a lovely quote, which I'm not going to try to do justice to, but where it talks about siblings being that partner on the life journey that's supposed to be there all the way through, you know, that they stay with you. And so I know she feels his absence all the time in, in huge ways and even in small ways when she's getting attention that she doesn't want from her parents who are asking questions where she wishes <laughs> that there was somebody else there to elicit those kind of questions. But I think, you know, Jimmy gave her a great gift before he died, which is that she was trying to get recruited. Actually, no, I'm sorry. She was recruited by Stanford to go play softball and she hadn't yet gotten in. And, and he had, he told us that he was going to have a conversation with her about not giving up on that dream because he was dead. And so one night, very close to the time that he died, he, he, you know, had her come into the bedroom where he was and, and told her that, that he just said, you've got to promise me that you are not going to stop going after this because I'm not here. And, and I think that was, that was a huge gift. Because it was permission to continue to want that and to not and to know that she didn't have to feel guilty because he wanted that for her, too. Mm -hmm. And and because he had been there himself and there wasn't this sort of shadow of he wasn't able to finish, you know, should I go? Is it okay? He kind of gave her his blessing. She got in and when she was applying for housing, she put on her application that she wanted to live in Jimmy's freshman dorm. And she explained why. Because she said, I feel as though I am here to do to finish out his time at Stanford because he couldn't do it. And bless their heart, they put her in that dorm. Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I know you've been through so much, and I know that you, you've done so much to help other people. And I just feel, you know, there are no words for it. And I also want to thank you so much for sharing your story. And I do feel like I got to know more about Jimmy and I'm sorry for your loss. Oh, thank you. But you have no idea what a huge gift it is to be able to talk to you about him, you know, to tell the stories and say his name. And I mean, that's just such a gift. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that I could at least do that. So where, you know, I'll put the links in, in your episode and in the show notes, but where is the best place for people to find you? The easiest way for people to find me is on the website and that's findyourharbor.com because my email is there and I think my cell phone might even be there as well. And people can also fill out a contact me form that'll go right to me. So that's the easiest way. But I'm also on, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at findyourharbor.com. Marco, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today and to share Jimmy's story and your story. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you.
Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.